before I jump directly into Psalm 19, I, I, you can turn to Psalm 19. Before I read that, though, I kind of want to give you a short introduction to this series. This morning is going to be a little bit long because um, largely I'm giving you an introduction to this series before I jump into the series with the first message. And I feel the necessity to do that because we're going to spend 10 weeks doing something we don't normally do, which is we normally will work through, ver- through a book of Scripture. But for the next 10 weeks, we're going to be working through passages, but disconnected from a particular book. So I want to give you some rationale as to why. 20 years ago, I was confronted with reality that there are thousands of people groups who have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thousands. The current number is somewhere around 3,100 plus. 3,100 plus ethnic, ethno-linguistically distinct people groups. They, they're a particular ethnicity, they have a particular language. They've never heard the gospel. They have no knowledge of Jesus Christ. There is no missionary there. There is no pastor there. There is no Christian whom you can send money to to support their gospel work there. There aren't Bibles in their language to send that to them. There aren't Christian materials in their language. They have zero access to the gospel. That represents hundreds of millions, if not potentially over a billion people, who have no access to the gospel. No gospel witness. Left dead in their sin with no hope. No inkling of an idea that a Savior's come for them and no one who knows their language to tell them. This knowledge led to a series of events, when I heard this the first time, led to a series of events and relationships that eventually culminated in Sovereign Grace Church participating in starting Radius International for the purpose of training people to go to these people groups. As Radius began graduating students, and as Sovereign Grace began having the privilege by the Lord's kindness to see our own missionaries be sent, we were increasingly interacting with mission sending organizations in order to help us send these graduates. And as we began working with the vast majority of sending agencies and having meetings and discussions, etc., we quickly realized that any notion of a biblical missiology or doctrine of missions, any notion that God has ordained the means to the end of fulfilling the Great Commission has been largely abandoned. And what has replaced the biblical means? Missionaries are to do whatever seems to produce the best numerical results. That's it. And missiology is increasingly based upon sociological studies, cultural anthropological studies, and anecdotal stories of what works. When we began asking questions, and you you almost feel sort of coy when you ask this question to someone who's spent years in the mission field, um, because you feel a bit bad to question their entire life narrative and work, but as you go to ask the question, is that biblical, is what you did biblical, We were dismissed out of hand as being doctrinaire, impractical, traditional, because that's bad. You know, traditional is bad, just so you know. Dogmatic, old school, and arrogant. 
That's just a few of the adjectives thrown my way, so you know. In fact, when I asked to debate a leading missiologist on whether the... I was asked to. I didn't ask him. I was asked to debate a leading, a leading missiologist on whether the predominant... Satan doesn't even like this, huh? You ready? We good? Okay. All right. When I was... Is this me? Yeah? Is it my wire or what? When I was asked to debate a leading missiologist, we'll see how we go, on whether the predominant methodology today is biblical, he followed the debate which you can watch on YouTube or something, I suppose. He followed the debate by sending out an official newsletter to thousands of people in the missions community claiming I was evidencing horizontal hostility. I don't know what that is, but I was evidencing it. And the dark side of fundamentalism. That's ominous, isn't it? We're told by these folks that methods are neutral. That you should practice whatever seems to work. We're told that the matter of the Christian faith, in other words, the substance of what we believe, can be furthered with any method that seems to work. And to claim otherwise is to be narrow-minded, dogmatic, fundamentalist, judgmental, angry, and arrogant. This has all led to a series that I'm preaching this summer on missions. My central contention throughout this series, is this. It's very simple. Doctrine and life cannot be separated. What God has joined together, let no man separate. Your doctrine necessitates a particular worship and personal piety or life of godliness and practice. It necessitates it. Theology determines your missiology. Your methodology for taking the gospels to the nations is determined by your theology of who God is, how God works, and what he requires of us. In other words, this is God's mission, and we use God's biblically prescribed methods. I don't want to say mission's God's way because you'll think I'm starting a new little movement that was used to be attached to parenting. You'll understand if you are old enough. Methods aren't neutral, nor are methods optional. Here's what I want you to get. Hopefully over the 10 weeks, I'm going to show you this. Doctrine and practice must walk together. They must. So throughout the summer, we're going to work through a series of doctrines that are pivotal to Christian theology. And I hope to show how they direct Christian worship and piety and practice. This means these sermons have implications for missions work, but also for pastoral ministry and for any church member's day-to-day living. Hear that? So let's begin by reading Psalm 19. With really what the first sermon is about, which is on the Word or the doctrine of the Word, the God who speaks. Let's read Psalm 19. To the choir master, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. 
Day to day pours out speech. And night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we Look at your word, this psalm sung by David, the psalm given to the church, inspired by your spirit, inerrant and infallible and authoritative and necessary for us. Pray that your spirit would enlighten our eyes, that he would help us to understand your word. And that as a result of hearing you speak in your word, the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this, what I'm going to say, might seem obvious, but it bears repeating. We did not create ourselves. Nor did we create anything else. In fact, even a great artist doesn't create anything. They take things that already are and they rearrange them. In some sense, we're creative like God is. In another sense, we aren't creative like he is at all because we, make, we don't make anything out of nothing. We're creatures and we've been created And we were created with a purpose. According to Westminster's Shorter Catechism, we were created to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That is our purpose. To glorify God and enjoy him forever. In other words, we are to worship God. We are to live for him. There's a Christian college that's quite large in California that has as their theme, 
to live your purpose or find your purpose, etc. And I think, well, we know what the purpose is. You don't have an individualized purpose. Did you know that? We all have the same purpose. Glorify God and enjoy him forever. Now, that will be articulated in your life differently than it may be in my life. But the purpose is the same. In other words, we're to worship God and to live every day of our lives for God. And in order to live for God, we must know at least two things. We've got to know who he is and what he's done. And second, we need to know who we are and what he requires of us. And our God, our creator, wants us to know him. He wants us to know ourselves. And he wants to know us to know what he requires of us. To this end, God has spoken to us in two infallible books. Do you hear that? He's spoken to us in two infallible books. The book of nature and the book of scripture. So please hear me. God has spoken. God has spoken. It is not that we've gone looking for his voice. It is that he has spoken to us. Christianity, please understand this, Christianity is not the faith that was once for all sought for by the saints. It is the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. We have received a word from outside. God has spoken. God has declared. God has proclaimed. God has revealed. God has delivered. We have received. We have heard that word from the outside. And God speaks so that we might know him, so that we might know ourselves, and so that we might worship him. He has revealed himself in his works and to his creatures that we might live for him. And God has spoken infallibly. God has spoken clearly. And God has spoken authoritatively in two books. And so today I want to look at those two books in which God has spoken. If we look at our psalm, it breaks these two books down. In verses 1 through 6 of Psalm 19, we talk about the book of nature. Psalm 19, 1 through 6 is talking about the book of nature. Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11 is speaking of the book of Scripture, what we call sacred Scripture or, in this case, our Bibles. And then I want to consider the implications. So I want to look at those two books, Nature and Scripture, and then I want to consider the implications of his speaking to us in this way in Psalm 19, 12 through 14. So we're going to look at the book of Nature, we're going to look at the book of Scripture, and then in, in verses 12 through 14, we're going to look at the implications to us. And specifically, I want to draw out some implications to missions, to the missionary imperative. So let's look at how God has spoken to us first in the book of Nature. And I guess the first thing I want to say is God has spoken in the book of nature. Look at verse 1. Now that superscript is part of that, to the choir master, a psalm of David. This is written by King David. To be sung, to be prayed. Now listen to what he says. And pay attention to the verbs in verses 1 and 2. Pay attention to the verbs. The heavens, verb, declare the glory of God. And the sky above, here comes the verb, proclaims his handiwork. Day to day, here's the verb, pours out. Now here's the thing that's helping you know what's being poured out. Pours out speech. 
And night to night, again a verb, reveals knowledge. Please pay attention to those. It says that the creation declares, proclaims, pours out speech, and reveals. I think the psalmist is being really clear. God is speaking through his creation. God has spoken through his creation. And according to verses 3 through 6, there is no speech nor are there words who voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. And I could go on. According to these verses, God is speaking to the whole world through what has been made. His whole creation is telling us all. And when I say all, I mean all. All doesn't always mean all. You say, what? How is that even possible? Like Paul says in Romans 1 and verse 8, I believe, if I memorize it properly, that, that your, he says to the church of Rome that your faith has been heard about in all the world. Well, clearly we know that the Native Americans, you know, hadn't heard of the Roman church's faith, right? He means in all the known world at the time. But in this case, he's saying, if you look at the analogy, wherever the sun shines, your word is being heard. Look at verses um, four, uh, so the end of verse 4. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. In other words, wherever the sun shines, and wherever its heat bears down, there God's word is being proclaimed. He's revealing himself. His whole creation has heard him speak. Every single individual in the history of this planet has heard about him. Heard about him. The Apostle Paul teaches the same doctrine in Romans 1. When he says this in verses 19 and 20, you don't need to turn there, just listen. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. Where? For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. Now hear this. In the things that have been made. God has made himself known. He has shown us what can be known about him. His invisible attributes. His eternal power and divine nature. In the things that have been made. The heavens declare the glory of God. Further, this outside word from God is spoken in the things that have been, ma- been made that it has not only been made known, if you will, externally. But God has made it known even within your own heart. It's an outside word that's been spoken to you not, ex- not only externally, but also internally. We call that your conscience. What do I mean by that? God has given you a conscience that tells you what he requires from you morally. When speaking of those who've never received any kind of sacred scripture, listen to what Paul says in Romans 2, 14 and 15. For when Gentiles, who do not have the law, they they don't have this book. By nature, do what the law requires. They're a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. You know the experience. No one had to read you a Bible for you to know what was right and wrong. Our consciences are pricked when we consider doing what is wrong. 
It's true of all humans everywhere. So God has spoken to us about who he is, who we are, and what he requires of us and the things that have been made. And God has spoken to us clearly, authoritatively, and infallibly. Yet God has also spoken to us in a second book. God has spoken to us in the book of Scripture. So that's the book of nature. Now let's look at the book of Scripture, verse 7 of Psalm 19. Look, look at, with me at Psalm 19 and verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord are pure, is pure, sorry, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Now, I want to look at this text here in verses 7 through 11 in two parts. First, verses 7 through 9. And as we look at verses 7 through 9, I want to talk about the necessity, authority, power, and sufficiency of the Scriptures. You hear that? All in three verses. The necessity, authority, power, and sufficiency of the Scriptures. And then in verses 10 and 11, I want to look at the unsurpassable worth of the Scriptures. So let's look first at the necessity, authority, power, if you will, infallibility, even inerrancy, and sufficiency of the Scriptures. Psalm 19, verses 7 through 9, and I want you to note a couple of observations. First, I want to look at the descriptive terms which David employs to name the Scriptures. Look at verse 7. The law of the Lord. Now look at midway in verse 7. The testimony of the Lord. Now to go to verse 8, the precepts of the Lord. Now go to the midpoint of verse 8, the second phrase there. The commandments of the Lord. Now drop down to the middle of verse 9. The rules of the Lord. The law, the testimony, the precept, the precepts, the commandment, the rules. He's piling up names for the scriptures. He's piling up names for what we call the Bible. He is not narrowly referring to the Ten Commandments. He's referring to all of God's word. All of it. Sometimes when you see the word the law in the Bible, you have to ask the question, how's that term being used? Is it being used expressly to refer to the Ten Commandments? Is it being used to expressly refer to something like ceremonial laws? Like, you know, you don't boil a young goat in a mother's milk kind of a thing. Or is it being used to refer to the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament? Or is it being used to refer to the whole of the Bible? Because that happens. In this case, he's referring to all that God has revealed. All of his revealed word. And he's piling up names from this. Now, don't miss from whom these scriptures come. Notice the statement, from whom they come. Because here's where you get the authority. The law of the Lord. The testimony of the Lord. The precepts of the Lord. The commandment of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. The rules of the Lord. You, you guys know who it's coming from? The Lord, most specifically, the Lord who is, the one who reveals his name as the Lord to Moses in Exodus 3. And the one who has the fear of the Lord listens to him when he speaks. So we can see right away the authority of the scriptures. They are the word of the Lord. And they carry his authority because he is their author. 
Thus they carry his authority. And the man who fears the Lord listens. Now second, look at the adjectives David uses to describe the scriptures. Look at his adjectives. The law of the Lord is perfect. The testimony of the Lord is sure. The precepts of the Lord are right. The commandment of the Lord is pure. The fear of the Lord is clean. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Perfect, sure, right, pure, true, and righteous altogether. In other words, not only is this God's word and thus carrying God's authority, but this is infallible and inerrant. It's pure and right and true. God cannot fail when he speaks in Scripture, and God has not erred in inspiring this book. Third observation, look at the verbs that David employs to describe what you might call the effective action. Um, Effective action is another way to say the power. You know, something has an effect. It's power. It's effectiveness. The effective action of Scripture, the power of Scripture. Look, the law of the Lord is perfect. Now notice this verb, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, verb, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, verb again, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, another verb, enlightening the eyes. Hear that? Reviving, making wise, rejoicing, enlightening. These verbs are interesting because they, of what they say ex- explicitly and of what they're saying implicitly. That's what they're implying. What's implied here? Well, if we need reviving, what's our state? If your soul needs to be revived, then your soul is dead. Good. It's not hard. Okay, that's not a trick question. That's what's implied there, and that's what Paul says explicitly in Ephesians 2, 1 through 4, isn't it? We're dead, but God made us alive together with Christ because of the great love with which he loved us. If I need to be made wise, if we need to be made wise, then we are stupid's good. (laughs) Fools is good. You like that? The pastor stood up and said, all the world is stupid. Yep. Foolish. That's our natural state. Your children are born stupid and foolish. Right? That's why you train them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. We need to be made wise. If that's the case, then we're fools. By the way, Proverbs 14, 15 says that the, that the foolish person, or the simple person, that's why he says, make wise the simple. That's what the simple means. Proverbs 14, 15 says, the, the simple person believes everything. They're gullible. They're foolish. And this is what Paul gets after in 1 Corinthians 1, 18 and following. He says, the wisdom of God versus the foolishness of men. The scriptures make us wise unto salvation. If we need to be more joyful, notice that, that it rejoices the heart. If we need to be made joyful, then that means in some way our hearts are empty. Augustine gets after this. When he talks about the fact that the, the soul only ever finds its rest in the Lord. If we need enlightening, 
because they enlighten the eyes, the word of the Lord enlightens the eyes, we need lightning, then that means we're blind and in darkness. 2 Corinthians 4, Paul comes right after this and says that the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And so God who spoke, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, God who spoke the creation of existence, when he said, let there be light and there was light, has now spoken into our hearts and essentially said to our darkened hearts, let there be light and now there's light. But how can any of this be? If the Lord has spoken in his creation and if the Lord has written the work of the Lord on our hearts, then how can this be? How can that be our state? Well, because we're sinners. In Adam's fall, sinned we all. Please hear this. There is no fault, nor is there any error in God's revelation of himself in the book of nature. The fault and error lies in us. Our sinfulness has rendered us blind, foolish, spiritually unhappy, and dead. We have suppressed the truth of God in unrighteousness, Romans 1.18. We have exchanged the truth about God for a lie, Romans 1.25. And the outcome is worldwide spiritual disaster. So we read God's book of nature, listen, with, if you will, fallible, sinful, foolish, and corrupted hearts and minds. Thus, while the book of nature is clear... And while the book of nature is authoritative and infallible, it can now only serve ultimately to condemn us. It is not sufficient to do anything more than proclaim the truth and leave us, as Paul says, without excuse. You know the Dutch reformers of the 17th century addressed this. They addressed it in the canons of Dort. Listen to what they said. There is, to be sure, a certain light of nature remaining in all people after the fall by virtue of which they retain some notions about God, natural things, and the difference between what is moral and immoral, and demonstrate a certain eagerness for virtue and for good outward behavior. We see all this, right, don't we? But this light of nature is far from enabling humans to come to a saving knowledge of God and conversion to him, so far, in fact, that they do not use it rightly even in matters of nature and society. Instead, in various ways, they completely distort this light, whatever its precise character, and suppress it in unrighteousness. In doing so, all people render themselves without excuse before God. See, that's precisely what is being implied by the language of the verbs in Psalm 19, verses 7 through 9. The book of nature condemns us due to our sinfulness. Further, the book of nature reveals, now hear this, the book of nature reveals no redemptive word. There is no gospel word in the book of nature. It declares no good news. Thus, in summary, the book of nature is insufficient, at least in three regards. And you don't have to write these down, but just, just consider what I'm saying just to summarize. Our minds have been corrupted by the fall. Now, we call this the noetic effects of sin, the noose, the mind. Thus, we do not see the truth declared to us in the heavens and in our hearts rightly. Our hearts, by the fall, have been bent toward ourselves and what is sinful. Thus, we suppress even what we do see truly. 
We suppress it in righteousness. We deny it. We hide it. We reject it. And the book of nature cannot tell us how to overcome our problem of sin and damnation. We know we deserve death. We know why we deserve death. But it can't clear up our muddy-headedness, nor our dark-heartedness. It cannot tell us God's plan of redemption. Can't do it. Thus, we need another word from God. We need a redemptive word. We need a gospel word. Therefore, the sacred scriptures are necessary. That's what David's saying. The heavens have declared the glory of God, but now you need the word of God in the sacred scriptures to be saved because of the judgment that's coming upon you because you have suppressed the truth and unrighteousness with regard to the things he's already declared to you. You need a redemptive word. That's what David's getting at. We need a gospel word. That's what makes the scriptures necessary. Without them, we remain in in death and darkness and despair. However, look at what David is explicitly saying the sacred scriptures do for us. He says the scriptures are necessary and sufficient to revive the soul. Reviving the souls of spiritually dead men. The scriptures are necessary and sufficient to make wise unto salvation, if you will, the simple. To make wise unto salvation the spiritually foolish. The scriptures are necessary and sufficient to cause eternal joy in a spiritually despairing heart. They rejoice the heart. The scriptures are necessary and sufficient to enlightening our blinded and darkened eyes. They, the command of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Why is this? Because the scriptures are God's word, breathed out by the Holy Spirit and attended to by the Holy Spirit to convert the soul and carry us to our appointed end. Look with me, keep your hand in Psalm 19, and look at 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Again, Paul is going to teach this very doctrine to Timothy, the man whom he sent to Ephesus to pastor the church in Ephesus because they were a bit of a mess. So turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to start by looking at verse 14. This is Paul to Timothy. But as for you, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. It's the scriptures. That's the Old Testament largely he's talking about, though not exclusively. Which are able, notice what they're able to do. They are able, they are effectual, they are powerful to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The scriptures make us wise unto salvation. Now notice, how are they able to do that? Look at verse 16. All scripture is breathed out by God. It's it's the God-inspired. The Spirit has spoken this. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. Notice what it does. It's useful, profitable, necessary and sufficient to not only your salvation, but for teaching. That means building you up in sound doctrine. For reproof. For getting yourself in line a bit, right? For correction. For training in righteousness. To what end? That the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. 
The scriptures infallibly, inerrantly, sufficiently, and authoritatively provide everything necessary for salvation and for sanctification. They are sufficient for equipping us for every good work. By the way, two good works that missionaries and pastors do. Establish churches and what? Build them up. Those are two of the good works the scriptures are sufficient to. The 17th century English reformers, most specifically those whom we would look at as later the Anglicans and, and more, even more specifically the Presbyterians, said this at the Westminster Assembly. Listen to what they say in their confession. Although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men inexcusable. Yet they are not sufficient. Listen, the light of nature, the works of creation and providence, are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and of his will which is necessary unto salvation. Therefore it pleased the Lord at sundry times and in diverse manners, this is quoting Hebrews 1, 1, to reveal himself and declare that his will unto his church and afterward for the better preserving, and hear this, propagating That missionary work of proclaiming for the better preserving and propagating of the truth and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and of the world to commit the same wholly unto writing which makes the Holy Scripture to be most necessary. Those former ways of God revealing his will unto his people being now ceased. It's for this reason that David sings. It's because the scriptures are able to do that that David sings of the unsurpassable worth of sacred scripture. And that's where I want you to look at Psalm 19. Let's move to the second part of this on the scriptures, this book of scripture. The sacred scriptures are of unsurpassable worth. Look at verse 10 and 11. More to be desired are they than gold. Even, now hear this, not just a little bit of gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Think about the drippings of the honeycomb or the sweetness of honey. I can't think of the sweetness of honey without thinking of Winnie the Pooh, right? For some reason. His irrepressible search for more honey. That's what he's getting at here, though. You know how sweet honey is. You just have this irrepressible desire to get more of it in your mouth. To consume more of the word. To pant for it as the deer pants for the water. To desire it as a starving man desires a meal. You just can't imagine anything more sweet to consume than the word of God. That is objectively true whether you feel it's true or not. It's greater than all the wealth of Egypt, if you will, the time of their writing, of all the wealth of all the world. It's much more valuable than any gold. We're a culture that chases after good food and Lots of prosperity, aren't we? Financially. 
Think about how much of your life, from your education to your effort during the week to your thoughts, are consumed with two things. Making more money so you can be more prosperous and so you can eat better meals. Let's not lie about it. You get done with breakfast and you start thinking about where you're going to lunch, okay? You're at work at 9 in the morning saying, where do you guys want to go to lunch today, okay? You just ate an hour ago. We just desire these things. That may not be your problem. Maybe that's just mine. And I'm projecting that on everybody else to make myself feel better. I don't know. But the point is, we desire these things. We desire them. And that's what he's saying is, the word is greater than all those things. Somebody's phone is letting them know. The, the, the word is greater than all those things. The, scripture, the scriptures are more desirable for your life than great wealth and sweeter to your soul than honey to your mouth. It is in the scriptures that we are warned of the justice due to us for our sin and told that if we listen to the Lord, we will be rewarded. Moreover, by them, verse 11, is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. In other words, only the scriptures offer you eternal life. That's why they're more valuable than everything else. Everything else might offer you more prosperous life here, but only the scriptures offer you the abundant life that Jesus is referencing eternal joy with the Lord. It's only in the scriptures that we can know our Lord in order that we might walk with him and worship him. It's only through hearing the scriptures that we can glorify God and enjoy him forever. So what are the implications of all this? This leads to our third point today. I had the book of nature, the book of scripture, and my third point is as boring as the implications. You ready? I know it's not very exciting. The implications. What are the implications of God speaking in the book of nature and in the book of Scripture. Let me give you three. Um, there's a lot of implications I could draw out of this, but for the purpose of today, I'm going to narrow it to three. Here's the first one. Truth is real. Hear what I just said? Truth is real. Why do I say that? Because we live in a day in which we tend to participate in something that, um, just to be as vague, just to be as general as I can be, that we historically would call nominalism. Nominalism is this word for naming something. It's true because we call it such. You see that in its most extreme form now in the kind of language that you hear from the transgender community. I am a woman on the inside. See, I can name myself that, and now it's true. It doesn't matter what my biology says. I can just declare that to be true, and now it's true. Right? That's, that's the kind of world we live in. That's the most extreme version of it. But it's, it's happening in lots of our lives. Your truth. You guys hear the language? It's your truth. It's my truth. This idea of highly individualized naming of what is true. So truth becomes sort of a mirage, doesn't it? Like, like some kind of thing that we're all in search of, but every time we get there, we find that it's not really there. But what we're saying is truth is something that is. Truth is not something that we construct. It's real. We receive the truth. We know the truth. We recognize the truth. We apprehend the truth. We discover the truth. We never, ever construct the truth. Truth is not grounded in subjective experiences, though one may experience the truth. Truth is not Eastern, 
And truth is not Western. Though some cultures retain more of the truth or less of the truth. If you say, you think some cultures have more of the truth? Yes, I would like to think that America during World War II had more of the truth than Germany. Wouldn't you? I think we all objectively know that we did. Truth is not individualized. There is not your truth and my truth, but the truth. And unbelievers can, now hear this, can and often do know true things. Unbelievers can and often do come to true thoughts about themselves and about God. If you don't believe that, we're in trouble because you can have no intelligible conversation with anybody who's not a Christian. Unbelievers can and often are civil and decent people. Secular societies and cultures can, are and often can be civil and decent societies. However, it is universally true that all men everywhere are sinners. And none, not one, can come to salvation in God apart from the sacred scriptures. Not even one. Yes, we can glean true and helpful observations from nature. That's what many of the disciplines you all participate in do. Whether it's science or math or sociology or psychology or cultural anthropology. But none, none of these offer us any help, not one iota of help in dealing with our spiritual problem. Right? Your doctor can know true things. At least you hope he does, right? But he can't save your soul. That leads to our second implication. All men, and when I say men, I'm using this term um, universally in a gender-inclusive sense, but I'm using men intentionally as well because I want to recapture some of our culture and language, even if it's just for a couple hundred people. All right. All men need to hear the book of Scripture. No one can repent of sin nor be sanctified or saved apart from hearing the Scriptures. If we're to live for God, to glorify God, enjoy Him forever, then we need the Scriptures. Uh, A Dutch um, further Reformation scholar, Petrus van Maastricht, rightly said, the skill of living for God is not a natural power. And therefore, it certainly demands a rule to direct it. He's referencing the scriptures there. Look at Psalm 19, 12, and 13. Who can discern his errors? You, you hear that? You can't even discern all your errors. You know that? If you're in an endless search for them, you're going to just go crazy and die. That's what's going to happen. You can't discern them all. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Here David seems to turn to begin to pray as he wants to prayerfully listen to God's word and ask God to change him by his word. Listen to how the 17th century English Baptist reformer stated this. This promise of Christ and salvation by him is revealed only, only by the word of God. Neither do the works of creation or providence with the light of nature 
make discovery of Christ or of grace by him. That leads to our third implication. You ready? God has spoken his word clearly to us through others. And now he wants to speak his word clearly to others through us. The gospel has come to us. The gospel has come to us. Please hear that. The gospel has come to us. And now we offer ourselves to God as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. And we do that for the sake of others. For the sake of others. For the glory of God. Look at Psalm 19, 14, as David continues his prayer. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is to be our prayer. Why does he attach the heart and the mouth? Because of what Jesus says. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So what your heart meditates on will determine what your mouth says. This is to be our prayer. And in one sense, the Lord has answered that prayer in Christ. Our hearts have been transformed by the preaching of the gospel word to us. And thus our mouths now praise him. As Paul has said... Listen how Paul picks up the same kind of language in Romans 10, 9, and 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. He's always going to connect your heart, what you believe, and your mouth, what you profess. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. These aren't two separate acts. It's that the one whom God has spoken to his heart, that one now speaks of God. And for Paul, this led to the need for us to use our mouths to clearly proclaim the gospel word to others. When he goes on in Romans 10, verse 13, it says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? How beautiful, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. And he goes on to say, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And actually, interestingly enough, in the very next verse, Paul ties you back to Psalm 19 and says, God has spoken to all the earth in the book of nature. Why does it surprise anyone that he wants you to speak of him, of his saving work in Christ to all the earth? You see, God is a clear communicator who has always spoken to us. Always spoken to us. He spoke to us in creation. He gave us his word in sacred scripture. Most gloriously, he spoke to us through his very own son, Jesus Christ. And when his spirit inspired the scriptures, he did so, notice this, in the languages of the people of his day. Hebrew, of that day. Hebrew, 
an Aramaic, some part of Daniel, Daniel 2 through 7 is an Aramaic, there's a couple other sections, and Greek. Further, God sent prophets and priests and apostles and evangelists and elders and teachers to make sure that the word is clearly understood and passed on and protected. And throughout the centuries, God sent missionaries and pastors who translated those same scriptures into the common language of their day and who have taught them and defended them and carried them ultimately to us. Now we as Christ's church, who have been spoken to by the Lord, are to speak his word to others. Do you hear this? I guess what I want to get to is the interesting, startling revelation for me of Psalm 19 is the whole text is about the Lord speaking. And then in verse 14, it says, let the words of my mouth, now we speak. God has spoken, and so we speak. Our people ought to read the word, encourage one another in the word, pray through the word, and share the word with unbelievers. Our pastors ought to become experts in the word. They ought to study the word. They ought to preach the word. They ought to teach the word. They ought to pray the word. And they ought to apply the word to their hearers. And finally, our missionaries ought to take the time and do the necessary work to learn the languages of those who've never heard, of those who do not have the gospel word in their language and culture, and preach that word to them in their language and translate the scriptures into their language. Listen, folks. God has spoken to us, and so we speak. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let me pray. Father, we ask that we would understand that you are the God who has spoken to us both in the book of nature and in the book of Scripture. That your word came most clearly when the word, your son Jesus Christ, became flesh and dwelt among us. We are thankful that by the working of your spirit, as this God-inspired word was proclaimed to us, as this gospel word was made known to us through others, whether that's parents or Sunday school teachers or some evangelist or some pastor somewhere, a friend or a co-worker, whoever it was, we give thanks that your spirit worked as they spoke this gospel word to us and that you enlightened our eyes, you revived our souls you made us wise unto salvation, that you rejoiced our hearts, that you've given us abundant life in Christ for eternity. And we ask, Father, that we would, because you have spoken so graciously to us, that we would speak, and that the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.